I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Talkless, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So, Uri, we got a lot of interesting feedback from last week's episode with yeah, Josh. We did. Um, if For those of you who didn't listen, we had Josh Walensky on, who is currently the manager at Mashkiach at New York Brat Factory, which is on the Upper West Side of New York. And we talked a lot about the kashrut industry and about different elements there. And we got a lot of sort of uh, fiery responses. Yeah, I would say on, from sort of loosely saying both ends of the yeah, spectrum. Which I think is, is kind of the best. It's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got an email from a prominent Orthodox rabbi in the New York area. And he said that he recently started listening to our show and likes it a lot. But he had a major problem with last week's episode. Basically, he got the impression that we were condoning uh, eating at this restaurant, Kishkosh, which does not have a any kosher certification right. on the restaurant itself. And he said, which I didn't realize at the time because I hadn't, I personally didn't know about the place before. But he said the place is actually open on Shabbos, which we confirmed is true. And so he said he said in his email. You need a Shomer Shabbos and Shomer Kashrus Jew to attest to the kashrut of any food. And with a meat restaurant, there are additional issues. Um, so he basically said no Orthodox Jew should be eating at this place. And he thought that we were giving it our uh, talking tachlis seal of approval. <laughs> right, which is, of course, what people are using when they make these decisions. Uh, the truth is I, I very much understood where he was coming from. And I, I definitely feel bad if we gave listeners the impression in any direction that we either support or endorse any particular mode of kashrut or, or the truth is that we, you and I, Uri, you know, we, we think about these things differently and everyone listening probably thinks about these things differently. And I would not recommend or not recommend any of these choices. It's a choice that people make on their own, maybe with uh, rabbinic supervision or with uh, rabbinic guidance. But this is definitely not something that we were trying to make any sort of claims about where the people should or shouldn't be eating in there or in any other restaurant, except for Brat Factory, which is excellent. Well, obviously, yeah, everyone makes their own decisions on what type of kashrut standards they want to keep. Um, but I think a place being open on Shabbos is an important thing to mention, and we didn't mention it. And I think he was right to point that out. And so we're mentioning it now. But another interesting thing from his email was that he said, my takeaway from that episode was that kosher supervision is an unnecessary expenditure that drives up the price of kosher food. So I didn't think that we were sent giving off that message, right? Um, but I so it's very it was interesting to me that he heard that, right? Which I respect and understand. Um, I think we were ju- I was seeing it as like we were asking, is this okay? Is this right. a possibility? Oh, I see. I see. I think the implications I think probably were there, and someone you know on the cynical end, which maybe we are. I don't know if maybe it came across in our voices. I'm not sure. But I could see why someone would come away thinking, this is crazy, this is too expensive, this this seems fake. I think we were definitely entertaining that possibility. But at least from my end, personally, if I was going to trust somebody who owns a restaurant and says, trust me, if you eat in my house, you can eat here, I think a big part of it would be Shabbos adherence. And if the place itself is open on Shabbos and the owner is saying it's kosher, but they're there and open on Shabbos, that would be problematic. Right. Yeah, I hear. I mean, it's a very personal issue, and it's definitely something that different people make different decisions about, and we're not trying to make a claim about what's right and what's wrong. Um, Actually, relatedly, something that was kind of interesting was um, feedback that I got specifically was about a hashkacha, which neither of us mentioned. Actually, I I had heard of before, but I'm not sure. Uri, do you you know the hashkacha IKC? 
I actually just heard about it yesterday. <laughs> okay, great timing. So IKC is a hashkacha, which is not one of the, I guess, quote unquote, mainstream hashkachas, especially in New York. But out of town, it's much more prominent. Sorry if I, to, to offend people you know, with that term, which I think it often does, fairly. But um, a, a good friend of mine who lived in downtown Philly for a long time, she said that IKC was basically the main hashkacha that they had for restaurants there and that it was very common. And no one out of no one in Philadelphia thought of it as a sketchy, quote-unquote, heksher, that this was very accepted. And actually, what she pointed out, which was fascinating to me, was that IKC, at least outside New York, I, I don't want to make a claim. Well, I don't want to make a claim about anything because this is all going from what she said but that IKC worked at least in downtown Philadelphia on this different model where it was with volunteer mashkichim who were local from members of the community. So people who were members of the Orthodox synagogue who were interested in sustaining restaurants, which they wanted to have hashkacha, but these restaurants were saying, look, we cannot afford something, you know, so ludicrous, like the, the more mainstream, again, quote-unquote, uh, hashkachas. Instead, it was much more reasonable. These mashkichim were all trained from IKC and got uh, went through a process there, which, again, I'm not vouching for or against. I don't know anything about it. But that then they would they had a rotation where they would go visit the restaurant, and the someone who officially worked for IKC would visit it or would come on a, a regular basis, but not as often as restaurants where there are no volunteer mashkichim, where, you know, you're there every day or you're there, whatever, on, on whatever regularity these other restaurants are. So I thought that was a really interesting model because what that what that does is create this system in which it can be way cheaper because these are people in the community who want to sustain this restaurant and they're doing it as kind of a chesed. They're doing it as kind of like a, a service to the community or to, to visitors of the community. So And it's their interest to keep it going. So you know, what if Brat Factory, instead of having the, the mashkiach supervision that they have now, and also instead of saying, hey, let's throw out the supervision completely, what if instead there was somewhere in between where there were volunteers from the community, you know, I would go once a week, you'd go once a week, or, or once a month, you know, depending on, on how it works, and we would do sort of the mashkichim kind of things, and I wonder how that would change, and I think there's also a difference between the vegan restaurants, dairy restaurants, meat restaurants, you know, as you were saying before, and I'm sure right. IKC, well, I don't want to say uh, I'm sure, I would imagine, and I think that IKC would have uh, different rules for different restaurants, but I think that's a really interesting model and one that I never heard about before. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, now that I'm thinking about these things a little differently after this feedback and from the last week, um, my questions would be about diffusion of responsibility and accountability, that if you have volunteers and it's multiple volunteers, is that as reliable as somebody who's being paid and whose reputation is resting on this being upheld? You know, if, if a volunteer misses a shift and something happens, like, okay, so then they won't get to volunteer anymore. But, like, would there actually be repercussions on them? And would that affect the discipline or the adherence that the, right. you know... Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, have. I think in, in some ways, I think you can make a similar point about someone who's being paid. You know, it's in their interest to keep the restaurant open because they're also getting paid per okay. visit and whatever. Yeah. So, meaning, there, I think that. it's an interesting point uh, how biases kind of affect these things. Uh, but either way, I definitely uh, was fascinated by this and I would be interested. It, it doesn't seem like this is the model that exists in New York, but I would be very interested to, to see how something like that would work and if it would be successful. Would you be interested in volunteering, Uri? It does sound fun. Okay, that was a strong yes, even though uh, he, maybe he alluded. But and and on that note, before we close out, one of the other pieces of feedback I got from a few people actually, which I think was pretty critical, and I also think pretty fair, is that I think both of us 
were kind of cavalier in we kept coming back to like, you know, joking about like sketchy hashkachas, which I think is not really fair. This is people's livelihood. This is a, a really serious business, which like, at least for myself, I want to say I don't know enough about. So it's it, I, if I'm like kind of being jokey about it or, or cavalier or making fun or something like that, that that's really not fair because, you know, this this could very well be incredibly legit. Like I, it just, it, I, I, I felt a little bit weird about that, and I thought that was really fair criticism. Right. I think maybe the lesson from this is that everyone who keeps kosher and takes it seriously should do their own research into which hashkachas and which supervisions they want to hold by, and that could mean speaking to rabbis, looking into the halachot themselves, and not just going by with the crowd and what people are doing. Yeah, I mean, easier said than done. Yeah. Town, downtown, all around the town. It's kosher all day long And we will never, never, ever eat Don't come together So join us and sing that kosher song La, 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 la Uptown, downtown, all around the town It's kosher all day long And we will never, never, ever eat Don't come together So join us and sing that kosher song La, 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 la So, Uri, now getting into this week's topic I'm sure that many of our listeners, probably most of our listeners, have already heard the whole saga about the Empire actor Jussie Smollett. On January 29th, which was about four weeks ago, Jussie Smollett said that he had been attacked in the early morning, I think it was something like two in the morning, on a random block in Chicago. This was immediately investigated as a hate crime because of the way that Smollett reported the attack. He, I think they, he said they poured bleach on him, they beat him up, they put a noose around his neck, uh, I think they also mugged him. They said this is MAGA country. Right, right, right. They were screaming racial epithets at him. Um, and there were a bunch of things. Jesse Smollett, in some ways, is kind of what we could imagine as like a, an identity target, right? He's black. He's gay. He's very outspokenly liberal. He's partially Jewish, right? Which I, I don't think he's been talking about, but I think his father's Jewish and mm-hmm. he, he identifies in some way as Jewish. So this story basically went viral the next day on January 30th. A lot of public figures started expressing support for Smollett. Um, even uh, like the Democratic candidates for uh, president, like uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, they all kind of released statements. Both Kamala Harris and Cory Booker described the attack as a attempted modern day lynching, which is very intense language. But understandably, I mean, they poured bleach the on noose. him, took put a noose around his neck and screamed racial epithets at him. Um, Booker even used it to try to talk about a federal anti-lynching bill. Uh, President Trump was asked about it. He also said, I think this whole thing is horrible. I can't believe they did that. You know, it doesn't get worse than this, right? But the story has really shifted. And now the Chicago police have started investigating. And then a few days ago, actually charged him with a felony for filing a false police report. They claimed that he made up this entire story, basically for the press coverage and because they think that he wanted to, uh, like, salary negotiations or something. To make something, more money on Yeah, his show. something related to his show. So here is Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson speaking about the case at the big press conference that they had. Good morning, everyone. Before I get started on why we're here, you know, as I look out into the crowd, I just wish that the families of gun violence in this city got this much attention because that's who really deserves the amount of attention that we're giving to this particular incident. So this morning, I come to you not only as the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, but also as a black man who spent his entire life living in the city of Chicago. 
I know the racial divide that exists here. I know how hard it's been for our city and our nation to come together. And I also know the disparities and I know the history. This announcement today recognizes that Empire actor Jesse Smollett took advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career. I'm left hanging my head and asking why. Why would anyone, especially an African-American man, use the symbolism of a noose to make false accusations? How could someone look at the hatred and suffering associated with that symbol and see an opportunity to manipulate that symbol to further his own public profile? So, Uri, I mean, I found this whole story kind of crazy. I think many of us did. Um, And in following it, I definitely went through a lot of waves of emotion. And I'm just curious just to to open up, you know, what what do you think about this? How do you you feel about this whole story? Um, I feel bad for Jussie Smollett a little bit because I I don't, I'm not going to diagnose him, but he he may have some sort of mental health issues that led him to do something like this. Um, I don't have too much sympathy for him, but I don't think he's like some sort of evil monster. I, I think seeing a lot of other people's reactions has been interesting because some people more on the left are saying, okay, yeah, so he's a poor guy who, you know, made this thing up and that's terrible, but these this narrative is still true that it's like very dangerous for a black person in America, very dangerous for a gay person, a gay black person even more. And, you know, because just because this wasn't true, like, you know, where were all you people when all the all the other attacks like this happened for real? Were you were you up in arms then also? And then on the other side are people saying like what the police chief said, who is black, but things like now you this basically hurt all other victims or future potential victims because people are going to be skeptical boy who cried wolf kind of thing i guess what i've been thinking about a lot is the motivation i know the police chief was saying the motivation the the motive here was somehow to increase his salary i guess by increasing his uh public profile and public uh you know sympathy that people would have for him but I've been thinking about what that means and where that comes from and what that says about our culture right now, that victimhood is put on a pedestal, that it's like people are proud of their victimhood so much so that there some people are willing to fake an attack on themselves in order to achieve that victimhood. I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like... That, I'm. I mean, there, there is something to that, but I feel like the analogy would more be if he lied about his race or lied about well, his sexuality. I mean, there's a lot of examples like I mean, this. And it's not a I new phenomenon. Up, I think my boss would feel bad not giving me a raise if I wanted right. one. Like, and the truth is, it, it does sound like a crazy sort of motivation for, for making up this whole thing for a raise. And I think also the producers of Empire did come out and say, like, that seems bizarre to us, like, He's never asked for a raise or like n- there okay, were no sort of I don't think that's really the point though. Yeah, but I, but I do think that it seems like the motivation, if that, that is really the case, the motivation seems very strange. And I'm just not convinced that that narrative is true, that someone with the victimhood, victimhood quote unquote of 
getting beat up would be more sympathetic in a salary. Like, I'm just, I'm not sure that's in true. A, forget about the salary, but about just in general, how we see, I mean, it is true. But that's not what this case is. He's he's not coming out and saying, like, I'm black and I'm gay, and then he's maybe hoping for a No, I understand. I understand. But, I mean, do you think this is totally isolated and different from, I mean, just the things that come to mind. First of all, there's the Elizabeth Warren thing with claiming to have Native American ancestry. You also have people, I think, many cases over the years of people having said that they served in the military when they didn't actually served in Vietnam served in World War II and and clearly the assumption is they said those things in order to gain respect or sympathy right. um even like holocaust stuff um you know anytime somebody says this is a holocaust survivor we all look with a very different lens and and perspective on that person um, than if they are just a regular old person who was not in the Holocaust, you know. And what do, you know? What do you think about that? Is that do we overdo that? I mean, obviously there's a place for it, but what does it say right. about the way we treat victims that right. this is this is what it's come to? So I, I think that's a really good point. I, it, it's interesting. This this episode is not about Israeli politics and about the election right now. But I, I think about a lot of politicians, especially in this election right now, where a lot of people are running on the basis of. I was a well-respected general and it's they're not talking about policies and they're not talking about, you know, things besides for that. And they're running on this identity of I'm a war hero. And the truth is that the more that American politics start heating up as we talk about the American elections that are coming up. It's funny, Israeli elections are in a few months and American elections are in like a year and a half. And, and in America, it's like we're so in it already. Um, but there's been a lot of talk which I think is kind of interesting about politicians who are running based on their identity and politicians who are running based on their policies. And I think that's really important to recognize. And it's very important, I, I, I think, to really focus on policies and not focus on identities. Mm. You know, I think Jussie Smollett might be a great actor. Again, I've never seen the show. But it is interesting and upsetting if it's true that he thought that he could be more compelling to the show and therefore they'd want to give him more money or give it, bump him up to a, a more prominent role if he were famous for being, for having certain identities, for having been beat up in a hate crime or being black and gay and all these things. Um, so I, I think that that does feel a little bit weird. But well, again, we're not actually sure if that's what happened. Right. I mean, I would agree with you there. And I think what you just said could be heard or interpreted as a more quote unquote conservative um, statement. I live to surprise. Which is basically reacting against the identity politics of recent years and how it's, it's always been there in some form, but it's just become a lot more intense and people just talk about it a lot more. And, you know, people are talking about Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg as having very little chance uh, of success in the elections because they're old white men. You know, that's obviously not a way that people what? They're spoke not saying that 10, about Bernie Sanders. Ago. Well, I actually just saw something yesterday that, that he's sort of like <laughs> the exception that proves the rule. Uh, I know we spoke about that last week. Classic. Um, because they don't consider him to be an old white man for some reason. That's interesting because some actually people do, a though. lot of progressives have there there's increasing chatter on the internet because Bernie Sanders actually a few days ago um I think in an interview basically was asked about you know oh the the fact that you're older the fact that you're white the fact that you're a man and he basically said like none of that should matter 
Like read well, my obviously position he would say paper. That. <laughs> no, but it, like it, it shouldn't matter. You know what should matter is what I voted for, the policies that I'm putting forward. That's the only reason that people should vote for anyone. Like put everything else aside. And it's funny because yes, it happens to be the old white man is the one saying that. But I don't know, Uri. Like, what do you think? Well, I, I that is the side that I definitely lean uh, towards. Right, we can more. wrap up. <laughs> I I think there is some validity to saying that a person's background and identity, family history, whatever you want to say, are all relevant uh, and to who they are and and what they stand for. And, and it's not just about the words that they're saying and the policies that they hold. But at the, at the same time, I think people have free will and people have autonomy and they should be listened to. And that's I, I think that's what Martin Luther King stood for, which is to judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And it's very ironic that in a way, we've sort of turned around a little bit uh, on that idea. Yeah, Uri, I think that's a good point. Um, I, I, I definitely do think that in some ways I'm maybe a little bit more conservative about that. But I think ultimately it's the ideas that have to win the day uh, and not the identity. But I think um, to, to pull us a little bit more specifically back to the Justice Smollett situation... Um, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is this big focus on hate crimes, right. on that he was attacked because of X, Y, and Z identity, and therefore this hate crimes uh, term gets thrown into the into the mix. And basically, what hate crimes is is a special category of crime that adds um, that adds a couple of years to a sentence if the if a person is found it's guilty. Treated of a lot sentence. more harshly. Yeah, um, the same crime once it's called a hate crime, is now treated much more harshly. Right. And to generalize about what a hate crime is, and or correct me if you, if you disagree with this, but I think a hate crime in a lot of ways is kind of a thought crime. It's saying, okay, not only, Rifki, did you attack Uri and beat him you know, to an inch of his life, you did it because he's an Orthodox Jew. Well, it's thought, but I think there needs to be some material evidence that that was the motivation. Sure, 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 so sure. Therefore, you know, so it's like, yeah, thoughts, but there's actual material proof that that was the intention and motivation. We're right. not just making assumptions. Right, right, right. Definitely. That. If while I'm, I'm beating you up, I'm screaming, I hate Orthodox Jews, <laughs> You're, you represent the worst of, of humankind, right? Of course, I wouldn't say mankind, but the, the worst of, of humankind. And, you know, if, if, as I do that, you know, that automatically puts me in a different category, puts right. my, my crime or my punishment, quote unquote, in, in a different category. And I'm wondering, Uri, sort of what you think about hate crimes. I think they're, they're a little bit complicated. And I think we, we have to acknowledge that we're, we have a certain victimhood that we are Jewish and, and hate crimes are disproportionately definitely affect us. And I'm wondering what you think about this. Yeah, I mean, overall, I definitely believe in the justification to have a separate category of crime called a hate crime. But at the same time, I think there are certain limitations to it. It's a little bit funny how like there are certain groups that these are the groups that are considered on the you know protected list. Mm-hmm. It, and so I'm sure there are other groups that somebody might identify with and might be beaten up for, like if, the, I don't know, their sports team or, just, right, or something right, right. like no, that. That's a really good some point. sort of club and, and somebody else attacks them specifically because of their association with that group it would not be a hate crime because it's not on the special list of and obviously that list is is based on historical context and and I things like that I think actually different states include different different groups different, different lists yeah. that makes it even more you know problematic right um, like some states i think include trans people and i think that's not uh, uh, okay yeah all of them so but i mean at the end of the day i i do and and obviously also the Jesse Smollett thing shows that people could sometimes in rare cases abuse this this special nature of these crimes um, to their own advantage, which is obviously so horrible. 
Um, but all that being said, I do see the reason for the existence of hate crimes, especially as a Jew. It's something that I appreciate and think is important. I think it would make a criminal um, think twice if if the purpose of you know jail and the criminal justice system, which is we could have a different discussion about at a different time. I know you're. It's something that you talk about a lot. Um, if the purpose, part of the purpose, is deterrence, deterrence, yeah, of, of crimes. So if these are crimes that are groups that are especially vulnerable, we want to protect them. We increase the severity of the punishments right. of those crimes in order to deter those attacks. Well, I absolutely believe that if it's meant to be a deterrent, it doesn't work at all because deterrence has been proven over and over to do nothing. But I actually think there's a different reason. I don't know about that, but okay. That oh, I, we, we can we can put evidence for that in the show okay. notes also. Um, but I think that there's, there's a different reason which I think is valuable sort of when we think about why hate crimes could be meaningful. And I think that is just sort of solidarity. I think that when someone is a when a group of people are perpetually victims of crimes because they are part of that class of people, right? Let's say something like Jews, right? Again, we are disproportionately affected by hate crimes. There's a very easy tendency for us to feel like victims, right. that no one cares about us. We are not protected, right? There, it, it's very scary. And I think what's what hate crime legislation does is sort of the, the state government and the federal government turning to this class and turning to this group of people and saying like, you're not alone. Like, what they're doing to you is not okay. And it's not just not okay the same way it's not okay to do X or Y or Z. There's something special about what they're doing to you, and it's absolutely not okay. And that can be sort of valuable for that victim group of people. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But even having said that, Urian, maybe I'm going to um, keep being that conservative voice in the room today. I'm not sure what's happening. I'm not sure how I feel about hate crimes legislation, right? You're, you're, you're right that I can't just beat you up and everyone assume that it's because you're an Orthodox Jew. It has to be that there are things that I say specifically or, or pieces of evidence that indicate it. But still, for, you, for, for me to beat you up or for, or for someone else to beat you up and I'm screaming things about Orthodoxy and he's saying nothing about Orthodoxy, he just wants your wallet, for that to disproportionately affect my prison time or my whatever whatever happens to me feels a little bit strange. I can imagine there should be different consequences for me doing it for a particular reason that isn't about more jail time, right? If, if it's like there's three additional years, what's that going to do? I sh- what I should do is have mandatory counseling about, you know, um, what victimhood is and different classes of people and all of those things. But what happens now is ridiculous. What happens now with hate crimes does nothing to actually change people, which is what I think prison should actually be about. But what about what you said about the uh, the statement that it makes and about the solidarity that the state is having with those more vulnerable groups? I'm not sure. I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of different, and I'm not, I, I don't feel certain about this in any way, but I think there are a couple of different things that we have to weigh here. And I think what has to win is not punishing people disproportionately. And again, I use the word punishment speci- very, very particularly because I think it is just a punishment. I don't think it does anything different. So your pushback is coming specifically about the jail time and the and the excessive punishment that yes. people are receiving? Like if what hate crimes did, if the hate crimes legislation was this person attacked or sorry, I keep you know, talk, imagining you on the street, you know, beat into a pulp. Especially because I would be able to stick up for oh myself. Oh my God, of course. I mean, the other guy, you should see the other guy, right? Um, I think that if what hate crimes legislation did was say that person has to go to mandatory counseling, you know, like all these other things. And I, well, I really think that that could be incredibly mm-hmm. valuable. They shouldn't get more punishment. Right. Exactly. I think the way the system is set up, hate crimes does nothing well, 
I mean, yes, it does something for the victim and the victim group, and and that there's a feel good quote unquote sort of you know uh, thing there. But I don't think that that value overrides the, right. the harm I mean, that it causes. I, I hear that. I think a big part of it also is just you know related to the solidarity idea is just classifying the crime as a hate crime and then filing it under that category so that we can have data showing the number of hate crimes that how many attacks right. on each group how it changes over the years because that's a very important information to be able that's to keep track really of that's a really good point so you're saying even if it, it doesn't have any punishment wise, right, there's no there's no practical ramification just for calling the attacker it a hate crime is right, important. just so that we can be classifying things right. more correctly that's a really good point i mean on a slightly optimistic note um, it's been pointed out by various mostly conservative uh, outlets, but the number of hate crimes is actually very low. Um, you know, one hate crime is too many, obviously. Right. But if you look at the country and, and the statistics that exist over the, from the last few years and before, um, in this country, the hate crimes are really, really low. And, you know, even just the reports of hate crimes are relatively low and the convictions for hate crimes are much, much lower than that. I think the point there is yes um vulnerable groups should be need to be protected and we have to be very vigilant when it comes to hate speech and racism and anti-semitism but i don't think an apocalyptic vision of the state of our country right now would be accurate and i don't think that's helpful um to have that perspective so when people saw the jesse smollett thing and they're like oh obviously that happened right. because those things happen every day right they don't actually happen every right. day like that right a, a lot of little things happen all the time but someone putting a noose around someone's neck right and i think what you just said is, is really true and really important that like what what happened to jesse smollett is really or the, the, cl the claim that he was making, is really extreme. And that isn't a normal hate crime. A normal hate crime is usually, like, verbal, right? It's not even mm -hmm. physical. It's me walking by or, you know, uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but, like, you know, uh, it's someone walking by two guys in a kippah and saying, kill the kikes. You know, that's a hate crime. Well, not that, but I have gotten comments. Right. I'm glad you haven't gotten speech. that one. What would you do if you did? I'd beat the guy up, obviously. Oh, yeah. I would, I would, I'd be so startled. Like, I wouldn't even know how to handle it. That, that's what happened when it, last time it happened to me. I just was stunned and kind of stood there for a second and just yeah. kept walking. Yeah. I wonder how much of this, and I'm curious about you, Uri, I wonder how much of um, the way I think about hate crimes or the way you think about hate crimes is affected by the fact that we are Jewish. I'm sure it's affected a lot. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about the big versus small. Um, I, I think... And when I was listening to the commentary podcast. Mm -hmm. um, they talked about that. And the fact that this was so over the top um, should be a red oh, flag. Oh, they talked about that? That's and the fact that the fact that yeah. there was like a prop involved. Yeah. Is... And he said that he didn't even realize he had a noose around his neck till he got to the hospital. And... Really? Because he kept Which... it on for like 45 yeah. minutes or something. Right. So again, like we have to be, I, I think it's important to be very sensitive about these things and not to say like, that meant it was fake from the beginning. Like, no, these things do happen. They're right. very rare. Um, like you were saying, much smaller level types of hate speech and hate crimes happen, which are which are also terrible and, and should be addressed and spoken about. Um, but they, another thing they mentioned on the commentary podcast, which I thought was interesting, John Podhoritz mentioned, um, remember that case um, with the um, professor at Columbia University a few months ago? Um, her name was Elizabeth Midlarsky, 77-year-old um, so. Jewish professor. Um, she, they found um, swastikas spray painted um, outside of her office at Columbia. 
No, I don't remember this story. Yeah, it was in November. A lot of people were talking uh-huh. about it at the time. Um, but Any new friends. Yeah, but it, it didn't... The, the interesting thing was that the story never went anywhere. And I was just Googling before. Um, they never found uh, anybody. They never uh, convicted any. And it's on they, a university they never campus. Charged there are anybody. cameras everywhere. Exactly. Right. That's what they were, they were saying. And uh-huh. I remember thinking at the time, it's like the, the article that I saw said, you can't get into the building without an ID. And there are for sure cameras everywhere. There's just something off and something fishy. I'm not necessarily saying she did it herself. Like, I don't even want to propose what could have happened. I do think, though, that like, I think one of the questions that people are kind of asking is like, oh, did we like rush to support too quickly? And I think we're kind of like also kind of implying that. And I I feel like I, I want to strongly say no. I want to still strongly say no matter what. That when stories like this happen, I, I do think that our, our impulse towards empathy towards a, a victim, even if we don't have 100% certainty about what happened, I do think is a, is the correct and important sure. impulse. I think if someone yeah. called the JCC tomorrow with a bomb threat, we shouldn't be like, well, let's first collect all the facts. Like, For sure. Well, I think, I think the part of the lesson of all these stories is take the case itself seriously and investigate it. But don't make broad sweeping yes. statements about the state of the country That's and the state very, of very our culture before the specific case is yeah. figured out. Right. Part of the problem with the, the media in general, and especially with with a case like this, is that everything is about fitting into a narrative. Right. And anything like this happens, and it's like, oh, this is exact. The, the the left immediately jumped and said, this is the narrative that it fits. And you know, the the anti lynching bill that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris uh, introduced. Or I think that was already on the books, but you know they, they, this brought it back into the national limelight. And when it was, when it turns out now seemingly to be a hoax, the right jumps in with, with these these narratives are sort of oh this is what they do, this is what um, attention getting, blah blah blah, uh, victims you know status, like all of these things. Like I think it's very easy for us to try to paint stories like this, and I think we have to try to resist that, even though I see why it would it's be hard. nice. <laughs> Well, as always, the conversation does not stop with us. Please be in touch with us by email, talkingtachlispodcast at gmail.com. And more than anything, we love, love, love when people are in touch with us by Facebook. We love messages on Facebook, but we also love when the conversation continues on Facebook posts. Our Facebook page is obviously Talking Tachlis Podcast. And of course, do not forget to rate and review us in the iTunes store. Thanks, as always, to Drive In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Topless. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.